Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Lance Morrow. He's the Henry Grunwald Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a contributing editor of City Journal and was also for many years an essayist at Time Magazine, where he wrote more of the Man of the Year articles for that publication than any other writer. He won the 1981 National Magazine Award for Essay and Criticism and was a finalist for the same award in 1991. His books include America, A Rediscovery, Evil, An Investigation, and more recently, God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. His brand new book, however, is called The Noise of Typewriters, Remembering Journalism. That subtitle can be read in a couple of ways, of course, in a time when many are proclaiming the death of journalism, or at least of objective news reporting, remembering journalism promises to look back to an era when certain things could be taken for granted. But remembering journalism also describes a memoir of sorts, of Lance Morrow's long career at time, of a lost world of manual typewriters and news tickers, and of the power, both the journalistic and myth-making power of time, and its founder and mastermind, Henry Luce, a man whom Lance never met, but whose presence looms large in this new book, which will be out uh, later this month in, in February. So Lance Morrow, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. Uh, so let's, let's start with this legendary figure, Luce, and with time, uh, a venerable publication. You have much to say about both of these things in in this book, but let's start with some of your observations about Luce. You note that people have forgotten, many people or most people have forgotten who he is, but you say that he was in some ways the key to understanding journalism in the 20th century. Uh, his career, you write, raised essential questions about the nature of journalism, about the politics of storytelling, and about the morals of power. You also observed that he understood that news doesn't die if you transform it into myth, and you call him the preeminent American mythmaker of the 20th century. So I, I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit about uh, some of these points that you raise with regard to Luce, and uh, you, you know what was it about his career and what he forged with Time and some of the other publications in his empire that is important in your view for people to understand today? One thing that, uh, well, I'll start with the fact that uh, exactly right now, uh, it is the 100th anniversary of Time Magazine, which was founded in 1923 by Henry Luce and his uh, partner, uh, Britton Haddon. Luce was a, uh, as, as you say, he was he's mostly forgotten now, but People in the, I think, in the age of the internet and social media don't understand, don't appreciate how important magazines were. Uh, and the the hundred years, or, or rather the, the, the time from, uh, say, the early 20th century until, let's say, 1972, which was the date of the folding of Life magazine, that was a golden age of magazines. That was a time when magazines were extremely important in the ecology of American information and American uh, self-conception, in the, in the American 
in the way that Americans thought of themselves. There were no national newspapers. Uh, the, the newspapers had at best a regional range like the Chicago Tribune. And, uh, and but they tended to be, uh, newspapers tended to be rather local. Luce and Britton Hatton invented this thing called the uh, news magazine uh, in 1923. There were a, a number of very important magazines, for example, the Saturday Evening Post, which had a long history. Uh, other magazines came along. Um, uh, the New Yorker, just after after Time magazine. And then uh, Luce's extraordinary invention called Fortune magazine, which was a very opulent production that started just at the beginning of the Depression, which was sort of a counterintuitive thing to do. And uh, in 1936, Life magazine, which in a third direction was a, a real piece of genius as, as a journalistic uh, inception. It was an, an extraordinarily successful American magazine. But Luce was a, uh, the son of missionaries. He was born in China, in Shandong, in 1898, at a period of immense American self-confidence, at, at a period, at, at a moment when uh, the, the Spanish-American War, in fact, broke out only a few weeks after Luce was born. It was the Teddy Roosevelt time. Uh, it was a uh, a breaking out beyond the American shores, and um, Luce absorbed a tremendous sense of self-confidence and idealism about America. He, because he spent his boyhood in China at the mission there. He looked at America from a very far distance from the other side of the world. And as a result, when he, by the time he got to Hotchkiss uh, at, at the age of, um, of 13 or so, and uh, then went on to Yale, he had a very idealistic conception of the country. And he never quite lost that. He was a great hard facts journalist. He was among the best journalists ever. I mean, he was really, just as a journalist, as a hard facts person, he was, he was terrific. But he had this, this added feeling about America that, that uh, he idealized America in some ways. He came, he came from old American stock. The, uh, the first Henry Luce had landed on Martha's Vineyard in 1636. But at the same time, because he came to, from China over to America uh, at the age of 13, he came as a sort of immigrant in, in, in the sense that he, he had a very fresh eye and a very naive eye in many ways. Um, and he, he, it's my theory that he used his magazines to reinvent America or to invent America along the lines of his rather fervent missionary idea of the country if he'd if he'd uh, been born in scranton or um, boston or chicago or someplace like that he might have had a very different and less starry-eyed sense of america but but he uh, he never lost that somewhat starry-eyed idea of the country and it was that was a myth you know it was, it was in other words it was a 
it was a sustaining conception that he uh, managed to uh, impress upon the American middle class for a long, long time, many years in the in the middle uh, decades of the 20th century, a very consequential time, World War II and the Cold War and after. And it was it was in, in the Vietnam time, of course, just he died in February of 67, just as as Vietnam was was uh, getting uh, deeply serious. And uh, and and it was the Vietnam era that changed the idea of loose and changed Luce's um, the, the the conception that Luce had imposed or impressed upon the country. So um, I, I think I think he was along with movies, for example, uh, he was a he was a uh, terrific myth maker, and uh, and he had a, a great deal to do with. Americans are very 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 self conscious people, I think, and and uh, Luce had a great deal to do with their idea of themselves that is uh, a an organizing idea uh, behind my book although the book has a lot to do with other things many other things besides lose it's it's interesting lance you you um you talk about him being a you just mentioned this a, a kind of hard facts journalist yet you're also saying he was a myth maker so there there does seem to be the tension between reporting and storytelling, between fact and myth. You know, you 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 have a, a nice observation in the book that journalism, this is a quote, in the 20th century proceeded on the assumption that there was such a thing as objective reality. We took it for granted that there was something called the truth and that it could be discovered. Yet at the same time, you know, as we've been discussing, the, the Lucian universe was was myth-making. So I, you know, I wonder. Um, if that's a resolvable tension, or if, if this is just part of his genius? Well, there, there was a, uh, particularly uh, when Luce was alive and, and up in into the 60s, and in, in the Vietnam time, it, it was classic for the uh, correspondence in the field, and this vast system of correspondent bureaus all over the world, the correspondents would file a great deal of information on stories that Time uh, was going to publish. Then Time would, Time's editors and writers in the Time Life building in New York would work these files and uh, other research into stories for the magazine. And uh, you talk about tension between the hard facts and the myths. The, the classic tension was between what the correspondents regarded as the hard facts of the story and the New York office's uh, version, which the correspondents often bitterly contested. There was a famous case where um, Whitaker Chambers, the famous Whitaker Chambers of the Alger His case, um, became the foreign editor. Um, around, I don't know, 45, 46. And uh, <clears throat> he would get files from the Moscow Bureau and the Paris Bureau and the London Bureau, and he would completely ignore them. And he would sit down in his office and write the story his way. 
and he felt that the correspondents were naive and uh, and fell for too many socialist or communist uh, scenarios. And so Whitaker Chambers would write the story his ways, and then there was a revolt among the correspondents, Charlie Wurtenbaker and Walter Graebner and, I, I, and others, who, um, who went to Henry Luce and said, this is an impossible situation. Uh, our, our, our factual reporting is being ignored and myths are being purveyed by Time magazine. And of course, Time got into a lot of trouble from time to time um, over its uh, slanting of the news and, and myth making and so on. But it wasn't very often uh, Whitaker Chambers was right and the correspondents were wrong. And uh, and Henry Luce was often correct, and the um, especially the intellectuals, uh, the left wing tending to be left wing intellectuals who just loathed and despised Henry Luce, they often uh, were wrong and uh, were just flat out wrong. And, and uh, some of them had been um, Stalinists or Trotskyists in the 30s, and they they carried a lot of baggage themselves. Some of them, anyway. And they uh, they were too um, like Teddy White when he was out in Chongqing in, in uh, China uh, in the 30s and, and during the war. Uh, Theodore H. White, who became a very famous author of the uh, Making of the President series and so on, but he was a young protege of Henry Luce, and when he was out in China. He was enamored of Mao Zedong and the communists, who were the idealistic, uh, wonderful guys in, uh, in in the countryside. And Chiang Kai-shek was this corrupt uh, guy that that uh, Luce had in a completely uh, uh, disingenuous, uh, almost reverence for. And that drove Teddy White crazy. So there was a terrific tension between Teddy White and Luce, and eventually they broke, and, uh, and uh, Teddy White went his way. Um, so that that was part of the, the the Luce story. But the funny thing is that, that Luce, for all of that, which that was a kind of a famous um, a public version of, of Luce and, and the Luce story, but for all of that. Most of the time, he was extraordinarily tolerant of dissent in his ranks, and he could be persuaded time after time. If 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 you had good arguments, uh, he would change his. He would let the story go. He'd let the story run, and he he hired communists. He hired socialists. He hired, uh, for example, James Agee uh, and and uh, Ralph Ingersoll, uh, who was one of his top men and uh, went on to found uh, PM, a, uh, a notorious uh, or famous, um, very left-wing newspaper. And uh, Ingersoll, while he was the editor of Fortune, <laughs> one night a week, he would go to a Marxist uh, study group, which was kind of amusing. And, uh, and when, when finally, Ingersoll decided that he wanted to start PM, the newspaper, the left-wing newspaper. Henry Luce offered him a million dollars to stay, not to not to abandon Time Inc. 
and Ingersoll stuck to his guns and went and, and founded PM. But uh, Luce was a very tolerant of heterodox views in Time Magazine, contrary to the view, to the, uh, to the story of Luce that is normally told. Um, he, Luce was uh, caricatured in a book by uh, W.A. Swanberg in 1972 called Luce and His Empire. And uh, Swanberg was a uh, 30s socialist out of Minnesota who absolutely loathed Luce. And uh, he wrote this book with a great deal of hatred in his heart and uh, committed all the sins of which he uh, accused Luce of distortion and uh, so on. Uh, but and, and that was kind of the parting word on Luce, unfortunately. Uh, my view is that Luce was much more important and much more interesting than, uh, than he was remembered at the time and certainly much more better man than uh, Swanberg made him out to be. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you also have a fascinating chapter in this book looking at uh, a celebrated work of American journalism, John uh, Hersey's Hiroshima. And you do so in a, in a broader, broader context than one normally encounters with that book. So in your chapter, you, you discuss the rape of Nanking, the Japanese barbarities and mass rapes of Chinese women and girls in 1937 and 38, uh, which may have wound up killing, you know, many more people than the, the Hiroshima bomb itself. Um, you know, I, I wonder what, if you could discuss a bit what you felt was lacking in Hersey's treatment of Hiroshima, and is there a lesson there uh, for today's uh, American journalists who often seem, you know, most at home uh, in, a, in a kind of mode of self-castigation. Yeah, that, that certainly is true. The, uh, Hersey became a sort of saint, uh, and his Hiroshima is a very penitential book. It's a very, uh, it, it's got a certain purity, which, which is quite moving. Uh, he but when you look when you look more closely at it, and then if you look at the surrounding history, uh, yeah, I, I began to become skeptical. And while I admire the book on its own terms, uh, I think that it, if you if you look at it with a certain perspective, you you become uh, less um, reverential about about Hersey. Uh, he interviewed this. This was a, a book that was published. Uh, on the first anniversary of Hiroshima, that is published in August of 1946 by the New Yorker as the contents of one entire issue of the New Yorker. And it made a big sensation because um, uh, it was kept secret. What, he, what his project was secret until the, that issue of the New Yorker appeared. Uh, after that magazine, then it was published as a book. Uh, Hersey's method was to interview a handful of victims who had upon whom the, the bomb had fallen. One of them was a German Jesuit, and then there were, uh, another uh, group of Japanese figures. Uh, he humanized them 
in many artful ways. He called them Mister and so and, and with honorifics and so on. He made them uh, very human and very sympathetic. And he told what had happened. Well, an atom bomb fell on them, so you couldn't help but be moved and horrified by what had happened to them. And uh, they survived, but but suffered terribly. It was a, it was a devastating apocalyptic event. And of course, it has changed world world history and so on. But um, there's so many other dimensions to that moment that he does not discuss that I believe influence the larger moral judgment that should be made about the event and the coverage and the way he wrote about it. As you mentioned a moment ago, the rape of Nanking in 37-38, 300,000 Chinese were murdered very brutally. Uh, so savagely that you can't, you almost can't conceive of the atrocity. The, the, you can't conceive of human beings committing such atrocities. Uh, the the many, 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 many rapes, uh, the suffering was absolutely terrible. And this went on for weeks and weeks. Now, if John Hersey had gone to Nanking and had written a book detailing what happened there, I would argue that the American view and the world view of the Japanese after the war would have been very different uh, from the, and the occupation of, of Japan would have been, I think, arguably much harsher than it was. And I think it would have taken a generation or two. Uh, the, the Japanese were incredibly atrocious occupiers in Manila, uh, in, 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 in what happened in Corregidor and Bataan and elsewhere, uh, if, if he had lavished the kind of detail upon that behavior that he lavished upon the, the bomb into Hiroshima, uh, I think it would have changed, arguably changed history as well. One of my uh, theses in this book is, is the, the way that it has to do with the way that journalism uh, touches history or, or touched history uh, in the 20th century. So I, while I admire John Hersey and he, his book Hiroshima, um, I think it's been, it's been granted a, uh, a reverence that it's not quite entitled to, or at least one should look at it with an asterisk and say, well, yes, but. Now, um, Lance, speaking, you know, of journalism more broadly, near the end of the book, you describe Time's uh, 75th anniversary dinner, which was in 1998, and the many famous people who attended that dinner, most of them at that time not realizing that Time's reign as this kind of uh, collective power uh, was near its end. And, And as you write, New technologies were about to rearrange the world. So here we are, you know, a quarter century later. What do you what do you think about the world of new media today that has that has emerged? Do you see the the losses uh, outweighing the gains, or or do you have some hope about the future of journalism? 
and you know maybe address a little bit more this question of the tension between myth and fact uh because today you know as we've we've been chronicling a bit in city journal there there is this kind of post journalism that's taking place where where facts uh are no longer really considered part of the picture yeah i don't i don't idealize the old journalism too much i i don't one one uh, tends to do that a little but i, I certainly it had its uh, big limitations uh but what's happening in the 21st century uh, it seems uh well in the first place difficult to understand because there are so many things going on simultaneously and uh, i think one could one could start with a, a couple of simple things uh, the famously the uh, greatest casualty of the 1960s people said was authority the authority of parents the authority of the president the military the religion uh institutions and so on um if you look at the new york times and in, in its uh, performance in the firing of james bennett or the firing of um you know, donald mcneil uh over um what i i think the firings were were way out of line and, and uh, there, there were revolts on the staff that demand making demands and so the management caved in well it seemed to me that the the failure of authority there was very clear and that that in the absence of an authority that that exerts strong that has a sense of clarity about uh the truth and about the obligations of journalism and about the standards of journalism and about the limits of individual discretion of individual reporters who say you know i must tell my truth or something like that uh the 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 gen there seems to me a a large failure in that direction and then the the influence of technology it, it, there's a convergence of the various elements the technology uh the uh social media uh the economic facts of life uh which uh were transformative uh and i mean for example at time magazine uh, i remember vividly when the bureaus when it dawned on the business office when the authority of the um, the old lucian authority the loose authority over uh, his control over both church and state and uh, began to wane as he in the years after his death and then it occurred to the business office that they could close the bureaus and that they could just parachute a guy in with a or a woman in with a laptop uh and uh the hotel and stay in a hotel room and well you lost a tremendous amount when you closed the bureaus you lost the um a lot of knowledge of people who had been embedded there for a long time and had a rolodex and knew knew everybody and knew the story and and so that a superficiality um came to prevail and they also began overworking the correspondence tremendously 
uh, and this is still true, there's a, a, a tremendous um, imposition of, of uh, seven days a week, and they have to, they not only report, but they have to tweet and so on. And, and uh, simultaneously, you have people so overworked that they sit at their desks and do the most of their reporting with a mouse. You know, they just do it on the screens. They hit websites and, and they do it by email. And then in, uh, interviews, for example, are done by email. Well, you lose a tremendous amount in losing the face-to-face -face by doing an, an interview in, by email because um, you, you send an email to the politician, he just gives it to his press secretary or legislative assistant, and they work out an answer and feed it back by email. And you, you've lost a great deal about the uh, in spontaneity and um, the, the, the train of a follow-up uh, questioning and so on. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm being scattershot about this because there, I see so many different uh, elements at work all at once uh, in the in the changes in in uh, journalism. I think a focusing event like you like the Ukraine war, for example, uh, will tend to bring out the better qualities of journalism in the 21st century because you have such a uh, vivid, demanding story. And you don't, the, the politics are a, a, a bit at a distance when you talk about just the battle coverage and so on. And, uh, and, and of course, if people got, get, uh, people get badly hurt, like uh, Ben Hall at Fox News, who got very badly wounded uh, early on in the, in, in the, uh, in the war. And, but you, you see, you, there's a lot of very good reporting going on. But um, there is this incredible tendency to to uh, let people just kind of, you know, the, the the politics and identity politics and wokeism and all that stuff has gotten in like a an infection and it's just gone like wildfire through the old idea of objective reporting and. Uh, and with the result that you can often read things in the New York Times, for example, or the Washington Post and other, uh, and on the other side, you know, sometimes Fox is guilty of these things, but you just, uh, you know, you don't trust them anymore. You don't, I used to trust the New York Times and I don't anymore because uh, so many of the media has uh, become um uh, They've adopted storylines. I talk in the book a lot about storylines, and uh, they've adopted a, an intensely partisan point of view, which is almost a theology. It's almost uh, it, it's got almost a uh, uh, it's a belief system. They they adopt belief systems, and anything that does not uh, conform to the belief system is to be cast out and is to be regarded as heresy. Well, if you, if you have journalism uh, based on, on that kind of uh, almost fanaticism in some cases, uh, then you, you are losing a very, very great deal in the possibility of 
getting toward the truth. Um, so I, I, I worry very much about it, and, and particularly in political coverage, coverage of government and coverage of politics. But uh, I mean, and one thing that sticks in my mind is that uh, you know the story of the border, the border stuff, and when the when the guys, the border patrol, were on horseback, and they they were the the left coverage said that these guys had been whipping and, and using their long reins to whip these uh, immigrants in the water. I think it was in the Rio Grande. Really. Um, and it was complete nonsense. These, these, these guys were doing no such thing. And yet there was a, they conjured up a whole time in the degree, uh, you know, the whole world of the atrocities of slavery and and uh, the cruelties and so on. And these are the these are the myths. These are these instant these instant uh, exaggerations or uh, the images that carry with them an entire world of meaning, moral meaning and uh, ethnic meaning and. On and, and so it's very volatile. It's very. I mean, I, I think back to the Vietnam War, and I think of uh, Eddie Adams' famous picture in 1968 in, in January or early February of 68 during the Tet Offensive, and uh, you remember the uh, the picture of Colonel Lawan, who was the police chief of the chief of Saigon, and he he pulled out a stub nose revolver and with his straight arm pointed it directly at the uh, temple of a Viet Cong, the, the head of a Viet Cong, and shot him dead right in the street there. And it became a vivid on the front page of every paper in the world. And um, it became an iconic, as they say, uh, image of the American, uh, these, are the, these are the brutes that we're involved with. Well, Eddie Adams always felt guilty about that picture because the stories did not tell the other half of the story, which was that just up the street, just a little while before, this Viet Cong who was executed had himself executed the entire family of um, the best friend of Colonel Lawan, and they were it executed him like the Romanovs in the basement, you know, and just shot them in a bloody mess on the floor in the basement. Well, if a picture and photograph of that massacre of the family had appeared side by side with the uh, picture of the of Colonel Luang executing the Viet Cong, world opinion would have been rather different. It's it's a little like Hiroshima and Nanking. Um, Right, the full context is missing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Lance uh, Morrow, thank you very, very much. The new book is called The Noise of Typewriters. It's available now on Amazon um, and will be out officially uh, at the end of the month. Um, you'll be able to find it in bookstores as well. Don't forget to check out uh, Lance's work on the City Journal website, www city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page and website in the show description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, 
at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast today, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Lance Morrow, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and congratulations on the book. Brian, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.